Hi there. This is the fifth spot, and I am Nicole Falcone. You may or may not be familiar with my website, senefem.com. I'm a writer, pro bono, this far in life. I began writing as a child. I wrote a little fiction children's book, Bound in Cardboard. It had a very official government-type seal drawn on the back with a bird. I assume it was an eagle. I don't know why. I don't think it meant what I thought it meant, but it was very official. My mom might possibly still have it, but it's possible that it fell by the wayside through no fault of her own. I became something of a nomad in my 20s, so not her fault if it's lost forever. In fact, I'm sure she would love to have this book, and if she doesn't, this is probably going to going to bring up some things. But anyway, in high school, I started writing poetry, really angsty, dark poetry. I filled up journals with it. Very grateful there was no social media. I'm sure I would have just plastered the stuff all over every platform for everyone to see forever. Luckily, I escaped that and it just wound up in journals that are either hidden away in dark places or have been destroyed. But in any case, I wrote. College cured me of that. It cured me of creative writing, as college is likely to do. I earned a BA in English 10 years after graduating from high school. That was not a straight 10 years in college. It was three different tries. The third go-round, I decided to finish because I had taken out student loans for the first time, and I knew that even if I didn't finish school, I would have to pay off these loans. I went back and I finished, and I got that bachelor's in English, emphasis on writing. I wrote for the college newspaper. I believe it was my second go-round in school. I was staff film critic, and how I got that was that I begged them to let me. I, I stalked them. They broke it to me that they could not pay me. I did not care. And I, I became the staff film critic. And the first film that I reviewed for that paper was The Cell. I believe the year was 2000. It was a movie with Jennifer Lopez and Vince Vaughn and Vincent D'Onofrio. Vince Vaughn was at the height of his powers. It's actually an interesting film. I haven't seen it in a long time. It's visually very striking. The director Tarsum Singh. He directed music videos, and it shows. It's more style than substance, but it's an interesting film, and it's the first film that I ever reviewed. I was in the theater for American Psycho, also in 2000, and I got to review it, and I gave it an A. And my film studies professor told me that I was a, a menace to the movie-going public. That's a direct quote. Yeah. I stood by the review. I still do. I love American Psycho. At some point in my travels, I, I stumbled into working at the public library, and it stuck. I've been working in public libraries for about 13 years. I've worked in two different districts, and for both of them, I have blogged on their website. What have I blogged about? Film television, all things pop culture, and maybe not all things, but th this is my passion. 
film is my 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 great passion. I'm self-taught. Which basically just means that my mom got me started early on on VHS, mostly musicals, buying a VCR, renting another, renting every videotape, and recording them. Shh, don't tell anybody. We got away, away with it for a really long time. And then walking to Hastings, our local video store, the closest one, uh, the best one, basically walking there every day in the summer. For 49 cent rentals, old releases, 52 cents with tax. So I would walk there every day with my 52 cents and pick out another movie. Obviously, I have cultivated favorites like any good cinephile, actors, actresses, films, the top five. I am not immune to that, not by a long shot. The high fidelity effect. I love a good top five, which leads me to the point of this podcast that you're listening to. Finally, right? My top five director list has always had a bit of a flaw, and that would be that I have never, ever, not once, been able to list my fifth favorite director. I can go down the list, one, two, three, four. I've had that list down since probably my early, mid-20s. But I have never been able to decide on who the fifth director is, hence the fifth spot. So the point of this podcast is hopefully going to be to decide who gets the fifth spot, rounding out my top five directors. Now, here's the thing. The plot thickens. I know, but bear with me. The the first four, they're all great directors. I had wonderful reasons for choosing them. However, the list itself, which I am going to share with you, is a little problematic for eh, various reasons. Uh, So while I was brainstorming this little podcast idea, it's occurred to me that perhaps my entire top five will be altered. It is possible because what I want to do is... Every show, I want to choose a different director. Some of these directors have been circling that fifth spot for a long time, always ones that I think of, but I just can't decide. But some of them are ones that maybe I want to revisit. Maybe I want to visit, not for the first time, but maybe visit more of their work for the first time. Give a shot to. A little more of a diverse group and not just the the typical the typical Gen X film buffs top five directors list. That's the idea. Sometimes it's hard to reconcile to separate the art from the artist to not separate them. Anything that's art or that's been created is basically a reflection of the time. That's why it's important to not pretend that these objectionable things, these things that aren't great, to pretend that they didn't exist, that they don't exist. Um, They did. They do. Art is a reflection of that. It's like a mirror held up to what's happening. You have to always reevaluate Do you completely chuck something or 
take it for what it is. This is something that's going to come up a lot. This is something we're going to talk about more. I'm doing a little disclaimer to say that I am aware that things have to be thought about and discussed. And that's why I'm here. And I hope that's why you're here. What I'm going to do now is I'm going to list off my four directors that I have on my list and my top five films of theirs. This is also what I would like to do going forward is just pick one director to look at for the show and look at five movies just because it's a good number to discuss my favorites, ones that have resonated with me, maybe ones that are important for various reasons. So my top five favorite directors. Number five, don't know. That's what we're going to figure out, hopefully. Number four, Stanley Kubrick. And I do have a list of, of top five films of Stanley Kubrick. I'm going to count down from five to one. All right. Stanley Kubrick. My fifth favorite film of his would be Full Metal Jacket. I have heard that this movie is one of, if not the most accurate depiction of boot camp ever put on film, which is terribly disturbing. Vincent D'Onofrio, again, mentioned him a little earlier, chameleon of an actor. His performance in this, he's in the first section. The, fir the first section is more the boot camp, and then the second section is what comes after it with uh, Matthew Modine, who's actually the main character of the film. But Vincent D'Onofrio is, oh, is one, one of these these poor guys in this in boot camp and he is having a hard time <laughs> to say the least he's slower than everyone he's more overweight than everyone else he's he just can't keep up and he is terrifying and heartbreaking and i think the film it's worth it just for that performance it's rough one of my favorite war films, military films. I have a few, but definitely Full Metal Jacket is right up there. So my fourth pick for my favorite Kubrick movies would be uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey. There probably isn't a lot that I can say about this movie that hasn't been said. Obviously, it blew my mind the first time I saw it. Watched it again not too long ago in the theater, actually, for the first time. And boy, did it hold up. Man, it is, yeah, it's Kubrick at his best, just so meticulous, and every shot has meaning, and there's the whole opening with the apes, and the shot where they throw the the bone that was, that became a weapon, and it, it circles around, and it, it turns into the satellite. A lot has been said about that shot, but it is perfection because it demonstrates the entire theme of the film with one shot so you think you don't need the rest of the movie but trust me go for the ride but if you want cliff notes that shot is all you need to know yeah it's gosh it's so great and who doesn't love how if you don't know what i'm talking about watch the movie you'll see yeah anyway great stuff so my third favorite kubrick movie would be Lolita, 
which I think often gets passed over out of his films, but it's an amazing film. It is perhaps not the greatest adaptation of a book. The book Lolita, I was a fan of when I read it. This is one of those things that I I think perhaps if I revisited it, I would not feel the same way or I would at least have different opinions about it. But the film alters a lot of things. This is probably actually the first Kubrick movie I ever saw because I saw it when I was a pretty young. My mom was a fan of it because of Peter Sellers, who we're going to talk about here. Peter Sellers is in this movie and he is weird and wonderful and Kubrick loved him. He he used him again in another one that we're going to talk about in a minute here. But yeah, so this was my introduction to Kubrick, I believe. And it it just always, I found it very haunting. I still find it haunting and just disturbing, but in a really beautiful way as only Stanley Kubrick can do. Well, not only Stanley Kubrick, but it's a very singular sort of horrifying beauty <laughs> that he has a knack for. Shelley Winters plays Lolita's mother. And I, oh man, in a movie full of interesting things and interesting people, I think she might steal the film. She is a force. She is amazing. It's similar in uh, A Place in the Sun, which is a film with Montgomery Clift and Elizabeth Taylor, who I could talk about for years. And it's an amazing film, but it, even in that, like, Shelley Winters, she just steals the show and just makes these characters that are maybe supposed to be unlikable, just they are, but she makes them human. And so, I don't know, somehow the the voice of reason or the person that that the, the audience can look through and say, yeah, this this shit is bananas. <laughs> like, anyway, in Lolita, she's a big character. She's nuts. But ultimately, I think she's more sane, probably, than others. Oh, great, great film, Lolita. So my number two Kubrick film would be Dr. Strangelove, which also features Peter Sellers in three different roles, three different characters. Absolutely astonishing. I should mention that I am a huge Peter Sellers fan. I've read much about him, especially the the biography, The Life and Death of Peter Sellers. There was also a film, I believe it was HBO, film that was made of it with uh, Jeffrey Rush. It's also amazing. Peter Sellers was just a really fascinating, complicated, troubled man, but just insanely talented. And interestingly, like I said, Kubrick really loved him. And in this film and in Lolita, he would let Peter Sellers run with, with well, whatever he wanted to just run wild because that's what Peter Sellers did and did brilliantly. But Kubrick, again, known for being very meticulous and also very specific, a perfectionist his way or the highway, just really, really meticulous. So the fact that he not only allowed Peter Sellers to run wild and actually wanted him to says a lot about Peter Sellers' talent. And yeah, he's one that, again, I could talk about endlessly, but this would definitely be one of his greatest perform three of his greatest performances in one, for sure. It would definitely be on my top five favorite Peter Sellers movies. It is the jet black comedic 
satire that just hits it perfectly. It is both timeless and timely in that you could watch it right now if you've never seen it and you would feel like it was depicting things that are going on right now because it is. And it, unfortunately, it seems like it always will be relevant. But you know what? At least it's a hell of an entertaining piece of work and just so great. And George C. Scott is in it. And <laughs> he has this part where he, he falls down and then he like does a somersault and jumps up. It was not scripted. It was just something that he... It, an accident that happened that he basically went with, and it is hilarious. Yeah, it is a hysterical, horrifying, wonderful, wonderful movie. My number one Kubrick movie would be A Clockwork Orange, which is also one of my favorite films um, of all time. It's actually one that I went and saw at the video store, ran out in the midst of my, I'm learning about this, I'm learning about that. You go down the rabbit hole with actors, directors, and all these things. And uh, Clockwork Orange was one of those. I went and rented it. I watched it. I immediately went back to the video store and found it to buy. I loved it so much. Another one I did that with was Harold and Maude. There's been others, but uh, those are the two that stand out. Interestingly enough, they came out the same year. But anyway, Clockwork Orange. Whew. Malcolm McDowell, who... I love, but he he has never been better than he was in this as Alex. Yeah, it is, again, sort of a dark, very disturbing, but also really funny in a dark way, a dark, cynical way. It has a lot to ponder, and it'll make you ponder a lot. It sure did me, and I actually haven't watched it in a while. I'd like to revisit it, but a wonderful film, basically, in the the not-so-distant future. These hooligans live it up and they do horrible things. And anyway, one of them gets caught and the government decides, hey, you know how we can take care of these shenanigans is we can condition it out of them. And uh, yeah, it's just that whole idea of, well, that might be what's best for society, is it? And what you're doing to this person, despite maybe what they've done, is that human? Yeah. Anyway, I could talk about that one forever as well. But uh, yeah, so Stanley Kubrick, my fourth favorite director, top five of his films, Full Metal Jacket, 2001, Lolita, Dr. Strangelove, and A Clockwork Orange. All right, moving on, my third favorite director would be Alfred Hitchcock. Very difficult to whittle down a top five. A um, lot of movies. I have not seen every single one of them, but I have seen a lot of them. And he was the master of suspense <laughs> for a reason. I also, when I was a kid, I used to watch Alfred Hitchcock Presents, which uh, you can actually can stream now, and I recommend it highly. It holds up the same way like a Twilight Zone does. Not saying that it's as good as the Twilight Zone. Few things are, but it's great. And Hitch, he, yeah, he was the master Master Suspense, one of the things I love about a lot of his movies is the way they begin oftentimes with this sort of just kind of banal kind of, oh, it's just a day, it's just regular day, or it's regular people, or everything seems so boring, <laughs> or just like nothing, nothing could break that it's, it's almost like a Stepford quality, but not as creepy, but just it's oftentimes daylight. It just seems like it's light and, and then it sneaks up on you in so many of his films. This dread, there's just dread and 
he would just really explore the the darkness <laughs> of humans of life and yeah it's suspensefully brilliantly and oftentimes it was revolutionary he paved the way there's a lot of ripoffs of hitchcock movies for a reason and a lot of homages and a lot of really wonderful films that owe a lot to him hitchcock my fifth favorite film again this was really hard to whittle down and so if you're expecting to hear one that isn't on here i totally get it drop me a line let me know where i screwed up but these are the ones I'm going to go with. My fifth favorite is Rope, which is, has a very theatrical kind of vibe to it. It's it's very insulated, very just not a lot of people. They're all in a one little apartment. Jimmy Stewart, who is in was in many Hitchcock films, and Hitchcock used him wonderfully all the time, very much against type a lot of the time. And this one's no exception. But yeah, it's just this very like intimate, insulated kind of thing that's basically, this isn't really giving anything away because this is how the movie starts. It begins with these uh, students murdering a fellow student and hiding his body. And then they have a party, like a little gathering that they happen to invite, not happen to. They very deliberately invite their Professor, too, they enjoy his theories about morality and all these things. And basically, it becomes this tense cat and mouse thing. It also has one. It is meant to look as though it is one long, continuous shot with no cuts. There actually are some cuts, but it, they're done creatively, cleverly to continue it to look like the entire movie is one long shot which is really amazing. The performances are great. It's very interesting. It feels like a experiment, and it's a success, if you ask me. It's a really great film. There's an episode of The X-Files called Triangle. I am, a, I am an X-File. I am a huge X-Files fan. That's a, that's, that doesn't even cover it, fan. But anyway, there's this episode called Triangle that does the long shots just continuous shots like that and it's all because of rope that would be my number five my number four pick my favorite hitchcock movies would be vertigo it's a very chilly film and i i can see it's ultimately it's a classic it's considered a masterpiece definitely one of his best but it's also a little polarizing in that people do love it but there are people who really don't like it and i think it's that cold kind of quality it's very technical again very deliberate in its shots and the use of color and the camera kind of going out of focus and back in it's all very intentional it's all beautiful it helps that kim novak is often the one on the other side of that camera and she's she's a beautiful woman my mom always actually said that she would be her pick for the most beautiful woman it's hard to argue with that and she also is really good in this movie and so is so is Jimmy Stewart again. This is actually the first movie that I ever saw with Jimmy Stewart where I felt he was doing something entirely different. It, it just totally playing against type of the the good guy and doing it wonderfully. He's creepy and he's screwed up and it's great. Vertigo, my number four. My number three pick would be Psycho, which is... The first Alfred Hitchcock movie I ever saw. I think it's probably a lot. 
People's Again, I saw it when I was a kid, mostly because of my mom, but it's a classic for a reason. Just a perfect example of Hitchcock, every shot meaning something and being really plotted out. And it just really broke the rules of cinema in an amazing way. The idea that you're the audience is with this character, which it would be Janet Lee's character, and this is who you're seeing everything through. This is our person, our host, and that person is gone in the first reel of the movie. Sorry, spoiler alert on this this film that's been around for decades and just spoofed endlessly. Anyway, you go with this person and that person is yanked away and you're stuck with this other person that while not entirely unsympathetic, is shady. <laughs> and maybe not who you want to be proceeding <laughs> through the rest of this film with, but you have no choice. You have to. Oh, it's just so great. And uh, yeah, Anthony Perkins, just so, so good. I'd say the only weakness is the, not the very end, because the very end is great, but just before it, there's the whole, let's explain everything. And probably not in like the, the greatest way <laughs> in modern terms. There's definitely some stuff at the end that's uh, a little phobic. And if you look at it now, it's a homophobic, transphobic. But at the time, yeah. But not counting that, it is so great. And I've seen it a million times, and I will say the voice of mother still chills me <laughs> every time I hear it. It is, it never, yeah. Psycho. It never goes out of style, except for that one part. <laughs> All right. My number two pick for favorite Alfred Hitchcock would be Shadow of a Doubt, which stars Joseph Cotton, who I also just really love. If you've never seen The Third Man, whew, run out and see that one too. But I love him in that. But Shadow of a Doubt is probably my favorite performance of his. And it it's very much so what I was talking about, where it, it has this kind of light beginning and then gradually this sense of dread comes and you're just, you and the characters are just in the middle of this nightmare and it's like, how did we get here? It's fairly simple premise-wise and it's also a little insulated. There aren't like tons of people and it just gets down to the business of being creepy. And the, the idea that terror or horror isn't just something that happens outside of you or outside of your little insulated home it's something that comes into your home that comes into your life on a personal level basically no one is immune and that's a scary thing and it translates beautifully again joseph cotton is great uh, Teresa wright plays his uh, niece and she's wonderful and the way that they play off of each other is really exceptional. Shadow of a Doubt. Great, great movie. So my number one Hitchcock movie would be Rear Window. Again, has that kind of beginning that's la-da-da and then, yeah, it sneaks up on you. But again, Jimmy Stewart, I don't know, he's great. Like I said, Alfred Hitchcock knew how to use him. Grace Kelly, who he also really loved using. I think she was maybe his original blonde, the cinematic blonde, the cool blonde. But she, yeah, she's beautiful, but she's also really fun and kind of feisty in this and just really great. And Jimmy Stewart's great. He's he's unlikable, but you can't help but like him. Great, 
choice of casting, but basically this photographer, photojournalist who goes and has all these adventures and he loves his freedom and he loves what he does and he breaks his leg. And so he is confined to his apartment and he hates it. And basically he finds adventure anyway by spying on his neighbors. And obviously that's going to backfire. Even if you've never seen it, you probably know something about it. There's definitely been spoofs of it. There's straight out modern takes of it. Disturbia with Shia LaBeouf is basically a modern rear window. But yeah, it is just my favorite things about Hitchcock is that idea of just a banal kind of existence or just people doing their own thing and it doesn't seem terribly interesting but what's going on behind closed doors what's going on that could just suddenly touch you and you would just have no idea and again that's I think that's the scariest stuff is when something doesn't just hit you with an anvil but it's like this subtle little thing that slowly creeps up on you and then suddenly you realize you're in the middle of a a war movie or a suspense movie or in this case an alfred hitchcock movie hitchcock uh rope vertigo psycho shadow of a doubt and rear window okay my number two director on my list of uh top five but really four, uh, is uh, Woody Allen. And I have actually seen every Woody Allen film except for his most recent one. And this is where I have to not ignore the elephant in the room and say that Woody Allen as a filmmaker, as a director, as a writer, has made a mark on me as uh, a film lover as a person, I, it's it would be impossible for me to to completely separate the influence that his films have had on me from me. <laughs> That's an awkward way of saying it, but his films are very important to me. However, I am not actually going to talk too much in depth about the movies. Um, one, I I did have an, a really hard time deciding on five. I had thirteen of them all of which are favorites. So I'm just kind of going to list off ones that have really made an impression on me that if you are just trying to study up, these are films that I would say are fairly essential. There's There are many different opinions about this, though. That's the interesting thing. He's done, I think, 49 movies. There's all different opinions about it. But some of the films that would be really high up for me, my number one would be Annie Hall. Because it's a, yeah, I don't believe in perfection, but it's about as near perfect film as you can get. And it is Diane Keaton, who is one of my idols. That's one thing is Woody Allen presented us with Diane Keaton. And I'll always be grateful for that. I love her. She's, yeah. I've often said that if if my 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 epitaph read a cross between Diane Keaton and Elizabeth Taylor, I would be very happy corpse but uh that's a tall order also i don't plan on being buried but in any case yeah love diane keaton this is a showcase for her it's a beautiful movie so annie hall would be my tops other ones that i would just highly recommend that are favorites of mine are love and death purple roads of cairo which has one of the most beautiful bittersweet endings i've ever seen it's 
I think it's the best Mia Farrow performance like ever. She'll just break your heart. It's a wonderful movie. Also, Manhattan, Hannah and her sisters, Interiors, which is uh, not funny. <laughs> it's a, a riff on Ingmar Bergman, who Woody Allen loves, and it it plays like that kind of film. It's very serious and very heady, and uh, Diane Keaton is in it, though, and she puts in a wonderful dramatic performance. So Interiors, Crimes and Misdemeanors. Sweet and Low Down, Manhattan Murder Mystery, which was a reteaming of, of Alan and, and Diane Keaton after a long time apart, and it's no time went by. Their chemistry is wonderful. It's a really fun movie. I feel like it might be underrated. Manhattan Murder Mystery, I think it's one of his best ones. Match Point, which I remember seeing in the theater, and it was a, it was a big comeback of sorts for Hamler. I, I should say a return to form. He'd been in a lull and I remember sitting in the theater and watching that and saying, oh, the magic is back. It's a wonderful film. It's also just a really amazing Scarlett Johansson performance, which she was not no nominated for an Oscar for. She also wasn't nominated for Lost in Translation, both of which I think are crazy. Yeah, it's nuts that she was just nominated for her first two Oscars, actually, at once, just a couple years ago, for Jojo Rabbit and Marriage Story, both well-deserved, especially Marriage Story. But yeah, Lost in Translation and this one, Match Point, she should have been nominated for. But anyway, great movie. Another one that felt less stale than a lot of his his newer things was uh, Midnight in Paris, which I believe is also, like, the highest-grossing film of his. It's a great movie. Oh, Bullets Over Broadway is another real favorite of mine, I would say. John Cusack, he's the Woody Allen stand-in in a lot of Woody Allen movies after he reached a certain age. There's different actors who basically are playing the Woody Allen character, the one that he would would have played back in the day. But I, I think John Cusack is is one of the best that's done it. He's he was probably my favorite. Very funny. And Diane Weist, one supporting actress. She actually won Supporting Actress for Bullets Over Broadway and Hannah and Her Sisters. And she's great in both of them and very different. Amazing actress. Both great, great showcases for her if, you, if you're trying to study up on her, which you should. And Mighty Aphrodite is also another favorite of mine. So that's just a big old chunk. Talking about all this and giving it some time because it's something that I want to discuss. Like I said, this idea that, that this person... Woody Allen has been one of my very favorite directors for years and that his work is I'll never be able to completely like extricate who I am from that and that that causes a conundrum. It's definitely something that I want to acknowledge and talk about more and also I'm probably not going to talk about him after this unless it's to really like dive into this but I don't know that seems like another podcast but mostly what I want to say is I'm giving him this amount of time because he's been an important um, piece of my cinephile education if you don't know what I'm talking about, just Google it or go watch Alan versus Pharaoh or just do some research. Obviously, there are different conclusions to be had, but what I'm going to say is Woody Allen has had 30 years of his 
voice in the aftermath of his relationship with Mia Farrow, the beginning of his relationship with Sun Yi, and in the aftermath of what he says didn't happen, but which Dylan Farrow, his adopted daughter, insists did, in fact, happen. And like I said, Woody Allen has had 30 years of this narrative and it's dylan's turn it's dylan pharaoh's turn to have her voice heard have her her story heard and that's it that's all i have to say about that moving on my number one favorite director is quentin tarantino this one was tough to get the the five top spots as well and i i have a feeling that there's definitely arguments over this the thing is that tarantino only has nine films ten if you count kill bill one and two separate but they aren't they're they're one and they were split in half though i'm gonna break that rule in a second as you'll see but basically nine films he only plans on doing 10 so as we wait with bated breath to see what that one is we can look at these masterpieces that he's created so my number five pick for uh my favorite tarantino films will be once upon a time in hollywood which is his most recent and it's just this epic alternative history that he really started doing with Inglorious Bastards and then Django and Hayfley, just really epic, sprawling. But this one, it's interesting because my film friend, he's also a big Tarantino fan. We actually did a joint blog about about our favorite Tarantino movies, but he said when he saw Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the ending, because it it is a revisionist history, basically, it's a happy ending that's very sad or at least very bittersweet melancholy which is interesting and very different for tarantino and just different in general it's really unique it's really an interesting way to go but tarantino also just has all these like just fabulous moments unexpected moments as usual it's full of those and leo dicaprio and brad pitt both give just stunning performances brad pitt won an oscar rightfully so i'd say he's at the top of his game and this i do think that leonardo dicaprio was really amazing in this one i think it would definitely be one of my favorite performances of his and that's saying a lot but he's so funny there's this there's a scene where he blew a take he's an actor and he blew a take he totally did and then he goes into his trailer and he's just berating himself and <laughs> it's it's so funny it is so funny. I couldn't stop laughing. It makes me laugh just thinking about it. Yeah, it's a really quintessential Tarantino film, quintessential Hollywood film. Good stuff. My number four pick would be Kill Bill, volume one. See, I'm splitting them up, but it is all one epic picture that the studio insisted that he split in half and really separately because it's just so huge supposedly there is a cut that's just the whole thing but i've never gotten to see it if anybody out there has if anybody has a bootleg or something hook me up but yeah been waiting for that forever i don't know i've not ever been able to really see exactly what he intended but i will say that maybe controversially as far as the two being split up so they are do feel like separate movies in that sense um that my Again, maybe controversial opinion is that I prefer 
Kill Bill Volume 1 to Volume 2. Now, I know Volume 2 brings it home and it's more emotional and has more character interaction, character study. Kill Bill Volume 1 is more like the lead up, so it's more style. But I just think it's endlessly entertaining and it it's paced perfectly and it's just the anime sequence is amazing. Uma Thurman is just kicking butt and yeah, I just love it. The soundtrack that is usual for Tarantino though. One of those that just knows how to use music in his film like that the music is another character in the film. But yeah, I really love this one. So yeah, guessing it's not on a lot of people's top five, but Kill Bill Volume 1, definitely my number four pick. My number three pick would be Jackie Brown, which I think is probably Tarantino's most underrated movie, though I think it's getting more attention now. I hope so. I hope that's true. It deserves it. It is just a gem of a movie and there's really no excuse for it not having gotten its due when it came out basically it was the follow-up to pulp fiction so it didn't really stand a chance because expectations were just so high and he went a different way which is what you should do rather than trying to replicate and then of course he would go on to just try all different kinds of you know genres and styles and that's one of the things i love about Kill Bill is it's very violent but it's very stylized violence it's very genre specific and in anyway he went on to do that with the Django and Hateful Eight and just this this um spaghetti westerns and all this and the thing about Tarantino is that he knows so much about movies he loves movies yeah he worked in a video store but i feel like i know a lot about movies i feel like if i tried to have a conversation with tarantino he would level me he i think he just knows so much and he uses it and he uses it in his own films to honor those but also just like to put a different spin on it make a different statement this is why he's my favorite director but anyway i went on a tangent what I was going to say is Jackie Brown is a little quieter, but no less brilliant. That's what I love about it, is it, sh it shows that Tarantino is capable of doing a lot of different things. It has his typical stuff that different characters, shifts in time, and yeah, great, amazing dialogue. You can always count on amazing dialogue from Tarantino, which is another reason why I love him, because I'm a, I'm a dialogue junkie i'm a word junkie and tarantino just hits that sweet spot every time and jackie brown has all of that but again it was the follow-up to pulp fiction and it also was a adaptation of a book an elmore leonard book called rum punch and it's the only adaptation that tarantino's done it was quieter and more just a yeah, a different vibe. Again, exactly what he should have done. And it's a wonderful movie. A Pam Greer is Jackie Brown. She's, oh God, she's badass. It kind of gave her a big comeback as though, as though she needed one. Did she ever go anywhere? I don't think so, but she's amazing. She's so tough. She also has this little vulnerability that comes out. She's just wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. And uh, Robert Forster, his performance is probably my favorite of his. His performance in Jackie Brown just broke my heart in all, in like the most wonderful ways. Just, it still does. When I watch it now, I still just look at him and I can feel my heart breaking. It's true. Jackie Brown. My number two 
pick, my uh, number two favorite Tarantino movie would be Reservoir Dogs, which was actually his first movie from 1992. I think a lot of people have left this one in the dust by now because it was his first one. And it's a very indie <laughs> film, very small budget. And it was his first movie, which is astonishing, by the way. Watch that. And whew, it's no wonder he's gone the places he's gone that was his first movie but i love it it's basically like an old-fashioned crime drama slash thriller and bank robbery gone awry and then the fallout is the rest of the movie it takes place within a fairly short period of time aside from a couple flashbacks again already starting with that trademark so yeah stuff that would go on to become his trademark and maybe it's a little rougher here and obviously he improved on it and he polished it but I got to tell you, I think Reservoir Dogs just holds up beautifully. I I rewatch it often and I think I think it's amazing. It's an amazing debut, but it's also just an amazing movie. Plus Steve Buscemi, Mr. Pink, iconic as Steve Buscemi is. Side note, did you know that Steve Buscemi has never received an Oscar nomination? That's crazy. Between this and Fargo, which is, ugh, that's a whole other thing. I love Fargo and I love him in it, but so much great stuff. Ghost World, Trees Lounge, which he also wrote and directed. I don't know. Anyway, go watch some Steve Buscemi, but Reservoir Dogs. There's him and Tim Roth is just basically in horrific pain, bleeding through the whole movie. He's amazing. He still manages to emote the whole time. Harvey Keitel, another like, whew, heartbreaker there just man he yeah he's in the middle of this like basically like a gangster movie and it's not really a gangster movie but a crime movie and he's he's hitting it out of the emotional park there he's got layers there's so much emotionally going on between Harvey Keitel and Tim Roth it's fascinating that they could that them and Tarantino and just the whole thing that that shines through the way that it does I mean, it, yeah, it's basically just a bloody mess between Tim Roth and the Michael Madsen and his ear scene. And whew, and then by the end of it, it is like a Shakespearean tragedy. It's, oh, God, yeah. Yeah, I love Reservoir Dogs. Yeah, that's, I still think that's right up there. So that's my number two pick. My number one Tarantino pick is very typical. It is Pulp Fiction, which, I think is his masterpiece. It's my favorite film of all time. And it's the one that I've probably also seen of his the most times. And I rewatch, I rewatch a lot, but that one I can watch over and over. I think Pulp Fiction is my, my island movie that if I could only bring one movie or if I could only watch one movie on a loop it would probably, like forever, it would probably be Pulp Fiction. That would be awful to only be able to watch one movie. That's hell, but it would be a pretty good hell if it had Pulp Fiction. Pulp Fiction came out in 1994, and my best friend and I went to see it. We were 16. We were about six months away from being 17, so technically we were not allowed into R-rated movies. So my mom, again, you'll see that she comes up, she'll probably come up a lot because she's a... Uh, big part of my my film education my film history but 
my mom kindly took us to the movie and she stood stood off to the side of this theater, little theater, the Tellerams Twin, two-screen theater. And she stood off to the side while we went to get tickets because, of course, we were hoping that they wouldn't actually card us. Oftentimes they didn't care, but we thought for sure this time would be it because it had a reputation already. But they actually did not card us. So my mom just nonchalantly left and came back and picked us up later after the movie. But she was willing to to come in and watch it with us if she had to, which uh, it doesn't sound like a sacrifice, but which and my mom Actually, she really likes Pulp Fiction now, but there's still stuff in it that she can't watch. She's a little delicate about certain things, so it wasn't necessarily something that she wanted to see at the time. But anyway, so me and my my best friend, Felicia, hi, Felicia, we went in and we watched this movie, this two-hour and 40-minute movie that flies by. It's one of the only movies, maybe the only movie I've ever seen that is that long that it's like closer to the three-hour mark and it just zooms by in a in a blink it's just perfectly paced perfectly plotted and here's the thing there has been in the aftermath of Pulp Fiction Pulp Fiction was a revelation it was revolutionary Tarantino was doing something original but in the aftermath of Pulp Fiction, everybody wanted to make the new Pulp Fiction. So there are many movies, some great, some not great, some in between, that are basically just ripping off or riffing on Pulp Fiction. But at the time, this was just unprecedented, pretty much. The timeline and the way that it jumps around and the way that the film kind of defies genre, it has everything in it. And the dialogue, these criminals, it's one of those that humanizes them, that we get to see these little conversations that they have. And it's like a Us magazine. Criminals, they're just like us. Um, but that's what it feels like. Just the little details, the things that they talk about. And yeah, just amazing. And of course, this was John Travolta's big comeback. Everybody's wonderful. And it's Samuel Jackson. I still think this is my favorite performance of his. He's so good. I know one section of the Bible because of Samuel L. Jackson in this movie. Yes, I can recite it as well as many other lines and probably entire scenes in this movie, but I won't. I will spare you for now. But yeah, basically, like we went and saw this movie and yeah, I was over in the blink of an eye. Wound up and going to see it four four times, I think, in the theater. And yeah, it was just amazing. And the thing about it is, it still is. I have watched this movie, I don't even know how many times. And it never gets old. It never gets stale. I never am not completely involved in it. And it never doesn't feel fresh, despite the fact that there has been so many movies that have just tried to use the same formula. It always feels exhilarating. It felt exhilarating the first time I saw it, and it still does. There aren't a lot of movies I can say that about. Okay, I have just sung the praises of Pulp Fiction enough, but not really. There's a reason why it is so talked about and so revered. Okay, back to why we're here. 
This will be more focused from here on out. This was an introduction and this is where I'm coming from. Let's go from here kind of thing. But it's going to be more focused. One director, talk about five movies. So probably more in depth and just about their career, their importance, why they're somebody that I think might be my top five. But I also really just want to talk about movies. I really want to talk about a diverse group of directors and I want to hear from you. So we are going to start off with that on the next show. The The search for the fifth spot begins and the first director that we are going to delve into is going to be Sofia Coppola. Just bring yourself, your ears and your opinions, and, and let's get into it. So I am on Instagram at Cenefem, also at The Fifth Spot. You can hit me up there on social media. You can talk about the things I've said here. You can talk about your favorite directors your top five, or you can email me, thefifthspot at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter, Cinefim. You can find me all the places. And next, we are going to dive right in to try and find that fifth spot with Sofia Coppola. Come on back. Talk at you later. Mm-hmm.